Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Beam podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to you about allegory and how viewing these texts through the lens of allegory can aid in the shifting of our consciousness. Um, I recorded two episodes before I went on a little vacation to Utah. I feel like I haven't done this in a minute. I feel bad. I realize that consistency is the key, but thank you for your uh, patience. Um, Some of you. (laughs) But uh, real quick, um, when you guys ask me questions, make comments, you send me these DMs and stuff, it really does help me put episodes together. I really do appreciate it. Please keep it coming. Um, Before we get into allegory... uh, Just want to remind you, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the Infinite Spark of Being and all that that entails, you can do that at theinfinitesparkofbeing.com where you can find links to the books, t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, art prints, as well as the Patreon link that will allow you to pledge $1 or $5 a month to the Infinite Spark of Being. So here we are, here it goes, allegory, let's get started. As usual, let's take a look at a word before we just start saying things. Um, An allegory is a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. So traditionally, um, religious, esoteric, and occult texts were written as allegory. Um, They were written that way because some of the ideas are difficult to get one's head around, especially if there's a lack of training on the part of the reader. Um, When I say lack of training, I don't mean to be dismissive or anything. What I mean is that some of these ideas can be really challenging to the mind, especially if the person hasn't really dedicated that much time to understanding it. Not everyone has time for this stuff. Yet, um, these lessons are very, very important. So allegory is a way of um, kind of wrapping medicine in something that the digestive system can tolerate. The digestive system I'm referring to is the mind, obviously. Uh, And remember, the mind is basically a system of filters and uh, information goes through these filters differently for everyone. So the allegory makes the medicine or this information understandable to the filters These allegories really are just meant to be helpful. Um, Personally, I use a lot of analogies uh, to get my ideas across. It seems to be effective. um, And just to clear up as well, uh, metaphor is typically um, poetic, while an allegory, or I'm sorry, an analogy is not. So my widget thing is an analogy. It would be a metaphor if I kind of wrote a story about it, right? So when these things um, are read and taken literally, it's, I hate to say it, but it's due to a lack of sophistication. And in America, it's certainly made worse by this underlying anti-intellectualism we have. Um, Fun fact, in the early 19th century, upstate New York was known as the burned over district. And it was called that because there were so many of these like 
fire and brimstone tent revivals. They just pop up and come and go. It was a mess. But if you're interested in that, there's a great book called Occult America by one of my favorite authors named Mitch Horowitz. Um, These churches, though, that would kind of pop up these groups, it was a selling point when their pastors had no formal education. (laughs) It was kind of something they're proud of. Like, look at this dummy and how wonderful it is. Um, In fact, when it came to Mormonism, which came from the same area at the same time, I'm more than sure, uh, the belief that Joseph Smith was this uneducated farmer was actually a selling point. To this day, they believe that. But, you know, that was something to be admired. But the reality is Joseph Smith and his family had some pretty significant occult. They had an occult background. I'm, I'm, I have no problem saying that. Um, so this anti-intellectualism, uh, it continues to this day. And it kind of, you see it with our who would you want to have a beer with voting strategy. You know, like we, we love Forrest Gump as president. So... This business of taking these stories literally, I believe, does more harm than good. I believe that it dilutes the message. It also sets you on the wrong track. And again, this is just my opinion. They don't, like people that don't understand the allegory or even look for it, don't get the full benefit of the teaching that's trying to be expressed in this book. So I'm going to attempt to make a point here. Um... I'm afraid that it could be upsetting for some of you. And the last thing I want to do is upset you. So let me start by saying, first of all, this is just my understanding. Um, I like my understanding though. And I like it because it improves my life. It makes me more open-hearted, more fearless. And when I'm open-hearted and fearless, I'm able to benefit others more uh, due to this open-heartedness and fearlessness. So I mean, I've had other understandings of these things that were more literal and I mean, I'm not going to discuss them, but for me personally, it resulted in not feeling open hearted and fearless. So secondly, I share my understanding with the intention of helping others. That's all. I'm not trying to convert anyone to my own thinking or prove my way of thinking. I just don't care. That being said, um, if this doesn't jive with you, then disregard it. You know, if, if you feel the need to hammer me over the head, please don't. Just know that I'm an inferior representative of my teachers and I'm probably a heretic and I should probably be ignored. However, um, if you disagree and you continue to listen, try seeing it as a thought experiment or as a thought exercise. You know, kind of roll it around and see what happens. So all of that being said, let's look at Christianity first. Um, What would happen if we looked at God and the devil as an allegory, Um, as an allegory for the higher self with a capital S and the lower self with a lowercase s? Um, Let's look at uh, this verse here. This is a verse that I randomly looked up. I was looking for something describing God and the devil. Anyway, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8, if sober, I'm sorry, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So let's look at this. What does it mean to be sober? Sober means not affected by alcohol, not drunk. So how do you act when you're drunk? Are you thoughtful, disciplined, and focused? I doubt it. I mean, some of you, you're going to say yes, but that's probably because you're an alcoholic. Um, (laughs) 
Now, uh, consider your mind when you're drunk. I know that my mind is loose and not always in a good way. Uh, people tend to be less thoughtful of others, less disciplined. You get the point. So to be sober-minded could be focused, disciplined, uh, vigilant, right? Now, if we consider this through the lens of allegory and think of the devil as the scared, small self that's you know ready to run and hide, then self-improvement will be difficult if we don't stay vigilant of that scared, small self's eagerness to jump in and save the body from some wrong perceived danger. Um, your frightened ego um, is always within arm's reach, right? Waiting to save you, but you don't need saving. So uh, remember the mind and the body, they just want to survive and thrive. They have a separate agenda than you. You're not the mind, you're not the body or the mechanism of the ego. You're the awareness that with practice can sit and watch the phenomena of the mind and body and hopefully attain some sort of free will that frees you from being a slave to the nervous system. So um, this is one of these things about the Bible and really all of the Abrahamic religions that I'm not crazy about. It's this ominous foreboding messaging that I'm not a fan of. It uses these fearful descriptions to scare the practitioner into living in accordance with, you know, the Christian belief system. And some living in that headspace now are doing so out of fear. They're scared of what's going to happen if they don't. Well, we all know what happens when you live from a place of fear, right? Like all the good things, just kidding. They don't. So, um, Next, let's look at the Ramayana. Uh, just as a as a note, though the translations may vary slightly uh, in a lot of these texts, um, they can change a bit. But ultimately, the story is the same, um, as well as the allegory that can be found within these stories. So, one of my favorite sections of the Ramayana is when Ram asks Hanuman who he is, and Hanuman says. When I forget who I am, I am your servant. When I remember who I am, I am you. Um, and Ram, being an avatar of Vishnu, the sustaining aspect of God, we see the point being made here, right? It's, it's, a, it's very beautiful in my opinion. Um, when I remember who I am, I am you. I think that's great. So before I continue, um, I'd like to make a point here as well. When it comes to allegory, Read the text completely through once without trying to decipher anything or anything like that. Just read it as a story. Then try to study the allegory. Then when you go through it that way, read it again and again and again. Look, these spiritual texts grow with us and we grow because of them. As, as we change, we see differently, right? We understand differently. So as we move along the path, we pick up these new ideas, new points of view, and these ideas and points of view add to our mind's understanding of life. Uh, and what's that? That's, of course, a shift in consciousness. So, I'm sorry. Back to the Ramayana. Uh, the allegory of the Ramayana is beautiful, but first I'll try to give you the briefest of rundowns on what this is. So, Ravana, the demon king, is running amok in heaven and earth, after receiving this boon from of, of invincibility to the gods, like he's invincible to the gods from Brahma. Um, and he got this due to his devotion. He was devoted to Brahma. Well, the gods are kind of gathered in frustration up in heaven, and they ask Vishnu to incarnate as a man, Prince Ram, 
and kill Ravana. Because Vishnu is a great warrior. Vishnu incarnates as Ram. Uh, his heart incarnates as his wife Sita. And his weapons incarnate as his brother Lakshman. Remember, Ravana is only invincible to the gods. And since he's so cocky, he can't imagine a human killing him, nor an animal for that matter. Well, uh, due to some shenanigans, Ravana kidnaps Sita, Ram's wife, and takes her to Lanka, this island off the coast of India. Um, you know, in the meantime, Ram and Lakshman uh, team up with the animals. And at this point, enter Hanuman, my favorite, the monkey deity, uh, the son of the wind, and, and you know, a, devotee, uh, a, a deity of service, and Jambavan, my favorite, the bear king. <laughs> and they're all set to invade Lanka, rescue Sita, and defeat Ravana. Um, I can't recommend this book enough. Please, please, please read it. Um, so one interpretation of what these characters in the story represent are Ram as your soul, Sita as your mind, Ravana as your ego, Hanuman as prana or life force, and Lakshman as your awareness. However, I prefer Ram as your soul, Sita as your heart, Ravana as your mind, and Lakshman as your consciousness, uh, and Hanuman as your intuition and courage. So when you first read it, it's, it's just a really fun adventure story, but when you understand the allegory, something shifts. Um, of course, your consciousness shifts, but it's something else. It, it's something deep inside that opens... Um, it feels like a lid just came off of something that was hidden, if that makes sense. I can't explain it other than that. Um, but the interesting thing about interpreting Ravana's role, the demon king as the ego, is that in the end of the Ramayana, we find out that even though Ram didn't know his true identity as God or Vishnu, that Ravana did know. Um, and he also knew that Sita was Ram's heart. Ravana knew the whole time. Ram and Sita had no idea. Um, you know, the lesson in that is that, you know, that the, how do I explain that? This is all just supposed to dissolve, right? This is all supposed to recall its true identity and then merge with it, right? And every text from the Tibetan book, The Dead to the Ramayana talks about that. But Back to it. So Ravana tells Ram through this letter at the end of the story after he's defeated, because he knew Ram was going to defeat him, that he never had the intention of hurting Sita. He knew that Sita was Ram's heart, but it was the only way he could get Ram to take him. It was his only way of getting the attention of God himself due to his birth as a demon. And remember, the ego is a function of the mind. Um, it's the result of being on earth in a body where the work is really just to navigate the illusion of separation. So the need to merge is actually built into it, but due to distraction and obscurations, we forget. And this isn't bad. It's just, it's just the work. It's just the way it is. So the next story I'd like to look at is the book that literally changed me and continues to change me. And that's the Bhagavad Gita. So the Gita uh, 
is part of the largest epic poem ever written, the Mahabharat. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a conversation between Krishna, who's an emanation of Lord Vishnu, the sustaining aspect of God, or just God, and Arjuna, one of the five Pandu brothers. So this conversation takes place on the battlefield of Kirichetra. Um, and there's a number of ways to read this. The way it was originally presented to me was as a factual account of a battle that was then used as a teaching tool, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's very confusing. Um, it was also originally taught to me in the, in the kind of the context of ISKCON, but I'm not going to get into all that. I'm just going to give you my understanding of it. So there's a few lessons here. First of all is that Krishna, the charioteer, uh, he's the charioteer. And that was a big deal because it was considered a low caste duty. But Krishna thought so much of Arjuna and loved the brothers so much that he, he offered to do it. You know, Krishna also knows he's on the right side of history in the story. So as the story opens up, it opens up with what's known as the yoga of dejection. Yes, coming into union through dejection and pain. And what this is, is Arjuna lamenting the battle that he's about to fight. He has to fight it because it's his duty. But he's got a lot of moral issues with what he's about to do, and he begins to express those issues to Krishna. Also something to know, Arjuna doesn't know that Krishna is Vishnu or God. Krishna knows, but Arjuna doesn't. So, side note. So uh, Arjuna is fretting over this moral dilemma, and Krishna basically looks at him and says, this is a gross display. You gotta pull yourself together. Yes, he shames Arjuna. <laughs> so let's look at, um, at what's being represented here in this allegory. The battlefield is the mind, the chariot is the body, the horses are the senses, Krishna is the higher self, or your soul, or even your highest potential. And Arjuna represents your scared small self, your ego, the piece of you that's afraid. So uh, the verse that I'm going to use as an example is chapter 8, verse 8 of the Bhagavad Gita. So, with practice, O Arjuna, when you constantly engage the mind in remembering me, the supreme divine personality of Godhead, without deviating you will certainly attain me. Um, and other translations uh, that I've read have said, uh, I will arise within you, not you will attain me, but I will arise within you. So we can look at this a few different ways. One would be that if we are seeing Krishna as God, then by keeping our minds on God, we will attain his qualities. Um, but what if we just consider Krishna as an allegory for the higher self? Well, um, what if Krishna is the soul, right? Um, a rep or maybe just a representative of one's true self. Then we could read this verse as by constantly remembering the qualities of the soul, the higher self, or even God himself, then we could attain those qualities and live a life of equanimity and peace. Or as I mentioned before, have those qualities arise within us. So when we read the Gita this way, something shifts. It becomes more personal, more workable. Um, this is a way for those that have difficulty with the idea of God to get the benefit of reading these texts. Uh, even if you do have 
you know, a solid belief in God of some sort, it, it gives a layers to our beliefs and in my opinion, uh, deepens our belief in God. So lastly, one of the biggest lessons that can, uh, that can be learned from the Mahabharata and subsequently the Bhagavad Gita is that wisdom frees you and morality binds you. Um, the yoga of dejection uh, that's mentioned in the beginning is all due to Arjuna having an attachment to morality or policy and you know, not really having the wisdom that Krishna has. The wisdom that says, I understand what the rules say, but unfortunately, we could have never seen this situation coming. And so here we are, right? Um, two characters that briefly get mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita that are really from the Mahabharata is Bhishma and Drona. And Bhishma and Drona are, you know, in the story, they're, they're on the bad guys team for, you know, to be honest, like they're, that's, they're on the wrong side of history. And it's not because they're bad people. In fact, they know that they're going to die at the hands of Krishna. Anyway, so these two, Bhishma and Drona, they were these, the boys, the five brothers, that was their gurus and their teachers. And, but they promised to always fight for the king. Well, they didn't know that they were that all the shit that went down that left this kingdom with a blind king and with an asshole son and a bunch of asshole siblings, they had no idea that was going to happen, right? But now they're attached to this morality. So wisdom knows the present moment. It only knows the present moment. It only knows what's happening now. Morality and policy, however, try to predict the future and make things black and white. The problem is, is that they're not black and white, right? There's a large gray area. So something else that needs to be realized in all of these stories is that in order for these stories to take place, there has to be an adversary, if there's no adversary, then where's the lesson? You know, like Anton LaVey would have said in the Satanic Bible that Satan has kept the church in business all these years. And I realize that he means that in his normal snarky way, but I do believe that it's an example showing that there must be light and dark. You can't have one without the other. And I realize a lot of people say that, but when you study these ancient books, you you really see that they, all the bad stuff is terribly necessary. So, you know, it's something to remember. There, there wouldn't be Judas. If there wasn't Judas, there wouldn't have been Jesus, right? If there wasn't Judas, there wouldn't have been a crucifixion. If there wasn't Judas, the, process, the prophecy never would have come to pass. You know, like in the Ramayana, without the conniving and lying assistant, Prince Ram never gets banished to the forest. Sita never gets kidnapped and Ravana never gets defeated, nor does he finally get to go to God. So the same thing goes for the Mahabharat. Um, if there had not been the adversaries, the Bhagavad Gita would have never occurred, right? There would have been no, no reason for Krishna and Arjuna to be on the battlefield discussing yoga. Krishna and Arjuna had to have that talk. If it's, it's, it's all painfully lawful, right? Um, similarly, within your own life, if you were not hit with adversity, would you have ever made the changes towards self-improvement? You know what I mean? Like, if it had not been the worst day ever, would you have finally made the move towards fixing things, right? 
So lastly, before I wrap this up, I want to say that I truly believe that reading these holy texts does something for us. Even uh, contemporary books like Autobiography of a Yoga, I'm sorry, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda and, you know, one of my favorites, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry by Jack Kornfield, they do something for us. I believe the intention of these texts uh, translates vibrationally. And it does it through the words that are used, especially when it comes to things like the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana. I have a lot of faith in Vedic literatures. That, that's it. You know, and the faith comes from my own experiences of feeling that shift in consciousness, that opening in my heart. And it's happened in my life many times studying these books. So that's it for allegory. I hope this was helpful. I hope that you find this beneficial. I'm so sorry I was late and I'm doing this pretty tired. My brain feels kind of scrambled. Um, as usual, if you have questions or comments or suggestions, please, please, please reach out. It really helps me with this. Um, I'll always respond. Some of you know that. Some of you know that I will, if you send me your phone number, I will fucking call you. So, <laughs> and as I mentioned before, if you'd like to support the ongoing creation of the infinite spark of being and all of its facets, please do that. The infinite spark of where there is a link to the Patreon as well as links to the books and other merch like, you know, shirts and tank tops and posters. And as usual, don't forget, you can always reach out and talk to me. We're old friends. Don't be weird about it. Bye.